welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yep. How you doing? Still off my game, because we're still at my apartment. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, this is not a setup that I'm no, used to. It is not welcoming. It is not homey. Uh, come on, you're on a couch, right? Well, you're on a futon. <laughs> <laughs> to, yeah. be, to be clear to the listeners, I am not. I, I'm 30 years old. I have a couch as well, mm-hmm. but then I also have this office type of uh, office slash den. Yeah, room. it's a pretty awesome little setup actually in here. I, I like it quite yeah. a bit. And so I've got a a, a couch in there, and I'm at the, I'm at the desk. So you can picture it. What's there's behind me on the wall is a hand, a big hand painted fan <laughs> of, with some fish on it that I got in China Chinatown. Mm-hmm. Behind you on the wall is a couple of uh, framed movie posters. Um, I was I was I was going to say should we like make some sort of contest where the guests have to guess? No, where the, where the listeners have to guess what movie posters I have on my wall. We should not do that because no. One also, would, I think you've said it before. No one would get it. You don't think so? I don't think these are two movies that people associate with me. Although I love them both. That's true. Yeah. One of them is very much a you movie. In uh, fact, I only saw it because of you. Yeah, that's true. And then the other one, I do like the other one as well. But, uh, yeah. No, let's not jump into a uh, dumb contest. It's Judgment at Nuremberg and Last Temptation. Uh, not, not Last Temptation of Christ. Last Tango in Paris. Pardon me. It is Judgment at Nuremberg last, and... Last Temptation in Paris. Last Tango in Paris. And the Last Tango of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man. Now that. that's... Yeah. I wanna, yeah. yeah. All um, right. Um, but, uh... Yeah, it's it's very it's a very nice evening here in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. It's a it's it's right in that in that sort of mid sixties sweet spot. I'm trying to embrace my last few nights here in North Hollywood. I'm I'm kind of moving emo- to North Hills. Yeah, I'm kind of emotional about it. It's very sad. Oh. I mean, I'm thrilled to be living where I'm going to be living, but uh, which is to say, I'm thrilled with the house. Yeah, the neighborhood's merely okay. And North Hills is the name of the city. Like your address will be North Hills, California. Is yeah, that right? in the same way that. It's North Hollywood now. If you were to write Los Angeles, it'd be fine. But I'm saying, uh, I don't know how you would or should take this, but until you told me where you were moving, I had never heard of North Hills, California. Uh, Until I had gone there, I had never heard of it either. And by the way, uh, looking on a map, we are in North Hills East. All right. <laughs> so, a little something there. But uh, if you're right in North Hills, it'll be it'll be just fine. So, uh, so people mailing Tyler things. Yeah, I'm not giving you the whole address. Just write North Hills. They'll get it. And if you want to mail us stuff, which you totally should, you can do that at our uh, P.O. box. Yeah, which you can find on the website, battleshippretension.com. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's bittersweet. Um, we're, we're happy to be moving uh, to a from a one-bedroom apartment to what is essentially a four-bedroom house. Three bedrooms and then one kind of little spare room that we're going to use as our guest room. But, uh, yeah, because, like, looking at uh, your office in here, I realize, oh, this is what I'm going to have. That's oh, all right. for me. Well, this, yeah, uh, Natalie also does her, because right. uh, the, there's a desk in here. She does her, a lot of work in here Yeah, uh, as well. But, yeah, yeah, this is, it is very nice. Having lived with, peop- with people such as you or my ex-girlfriend in a one-bedroom apartment before, being able to like we're both home but we don't necessarily need to hang out together yeah. and being able to like one person you know is on the computer the other person's watching a movie it's it is so good for a relationship either a friendship or another relationship it's a great thing to be able to do well and i've been working from home for three and a half years right. jen has been working from home that whole time as well so two people working from home yeah 
in a one bedroom apartment for three and a half years, like after a certain point, and then then two days a week, Jen's uh, assistant is there. So oh, like man. it's it gets pretty cramped, and uh, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna be so excited. What I like about the fact that you're moving is I feel like I can be really specific about your neighborhood your like current neighborhood because by the time this episode goes up you will have moved into your new place yes so i can say like oh are you gonna miss the tonga hut which is practically around the corner from you i've i've never been there but i do like driving by you never went for natalie's birthday no i no i didn't oh thought you were there um or sean's birthday no i guess not all right um what about the Century 8 Theater? That's walking I will miss that, house? yes. I will miss yeah. that. And then I miss that on one side. I'm going to miss the $3 uh, Regency Theater on right. the other side. A little side. bit of a longer walk, but still walkable. Yeah, it's, it's slightly longer. Yeah. But yeah, I'm going to miss those. I'm going to miss the little uh, pool hall right there. I'm going to miss uh, having a Ralph's really close or a grocery store at all really close. Oh, really? Yeah. Where I'm moving now, there's not a close uh, grocery store. There is a... Uh, I'll tell you this... This is fascinating. Within, I'm going to say, a 60-second walk um, of my new place, there's a little restaurant that I will not say the name of. Um, you walk inside, you've walked into Branson. Uh-huh. Which, not Branson itself. It's not like it's gaudy like that. But, you, I mean, there, I mean, you, you've lived in southern Missouri. Uh-huh. I've um, been to Branson. Yeah. Like, there are little, like a, almost like a Bob Evans or like a Cracker Barrel kind of, kind of type thing. And so you walk in, and it's just... First off, it's clearly for older people, uh-huh. and uh, as my uh, realtor, as my realtor pointed out, it's like it's like you walk in, you're like, oh, this is the last haven of old white people in North Hills, because <laughs> the because the demographic is predominantly uh, like uh, Latino. Okay, um, but you walk in, it's like, oh, this is where this is where they are, and it, like closes at nine p.m. But their menus, everything I like, <laughs> and so, but also just the general the general uh, vibe of the place. You walk in and you really feel like you've just walked into Southern Missouri. It has that vibe. And then you look out the window like, where am I? It's it's like uh, it's like if Dorothy's uh, house, you know, when it lands in Oz, (laughs) it's like, well, I know in here is Kansas. What the hell is out there? And so it it reminded me of that. I never thought about the idea, but yeah, your 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 culinary tastes are very sort of mid 60s Americana. Yeah, probably. So <laughs> I'd say everything about me is kind of mid sixties Americana. Uh, but you know what? Let's let's uh, uh, let's see. Should we do sponsor or top of the show? Discussion? I have more things to say about North Hollywood, but I don't remember. What I know. They are I, now. I maybe we'll talk about it in the next episode. Yeah, because I don't want to spend too much time on sure. uh, on that. But uh, we'll do we'll do a sponsor uh, first, and then we'll move on. Um, okay. So once again, this episode comes to you courtesy of You're Dead. The film that is uh, currently raising money. Uh, although, I will say this, and I hope this does not deter anybody who is interested. Uh, the film is now funded. Uh, and then some. So, But you know what? You can still get in. Yeah, and you and still get the, the, the... What do they call them? The rewards or the, yeah, the packages? Yeah, it's called a... There's a... Stretch? Is that what it is? Like a stretch goal or something like that? Where no, I just mean like when you... you you pledge a or you give a certain amount and oh, you yeah. get something. Yeah, you still qualify for the the, the rewards and all that sort of thing. Yeah, for, yeah. So for, I mean, that's that still seems worth it to me. Yeah. So that's the thing. So you you know you're you're giving money. You're going to get the reward, and you have the added benefit of knowing that the movie is absolutely going to get made. So if it's something that interests you, right. then it's done already. So now you're just paying a piece for, of history. Yeah, 
You're just paying for the reward as well. But uh, but I'll read I'll I'll read some stuff about it, and you guys can decide if it sounds interesting to you. It sounds interesting to me. Definitely. You're Dead is a horror action feature film blending modern horror with the 1970s grindhouse aesthetic, and including healthy doses of violence, sex appeal, and American muscle. I like that last part. Uh, Lexi and Beth are two sisters who take a wrong turn and find themselves in a strange town not found on any map. When the sisters discover the town's dark secret, they become targets for the locals, fighting for their lives against an evil that will never let them leave. Produced by Golden Tiger Productions and Seek Pictures, Your Dead is shooting in Baltimore, Maryland this spring, and they need your help to fund the film. As I said before, it has been funded, but uh, every little bit helps. All the more reason. All the more reason, indeed. So you yeah. can go to BattleshipPretension.com, click on the uh, sky, uh, skyscraper ad on the right side of the page that says You're Dead. Uh, feel free to watch their little uh, trailer thing to find out more about it and, uh, and help them out. You know what's also right? Uh, I can't remember if it's above or below the You're Dead skyscraper uh, ad is uh, one for Tweaked. Mm. Now, what is this? Now, Tweaked is... This is this is also fully funded and operational. Oh, absolutely. This is not a prospect. You give your money to Tweaked, you get the thing you gave your money for. And we get some if you go, if you use the uh the portal on our website or or go directly to tweakedaudio.com/pretension. But you just go to battleshippretension.com as you do daily anyway to read our awesome uh reviews and 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 find links to our other uh the other podcasts in the in the BP fleet, mm-hmm. um, you, you click on that and you and you'll be transported magically to a world of professional quality audio and big big savings because it's these are these are earbuds again professional quality a variety of uh, dare I say very attractive styles and colors uh, and the thing is they're really affordable to begin with. But you, because you're special, because you're smart, because you have good taste in movies and have good taste in people writing about movies, and you've been to BattleshipRetention.com, you get the extra added discount of one-third off. Again, already cheap, and you're only paying 66.6 repeating percent of that already cheap price. And free shipping. You're an idiot if you don't do it, really. Yeah, you're not an idiot, are you? <laughs> uh, all right um while we're on the topic of announcements um it is march um at the end of this month for the i guess second year in a row although we didn't go last year uh WonderCon is being held in anaheim yeah and we're gonna go yep um i, I don't know if i'm gonna make a huge thing out of it like i do with comic-con I'm, i might not even stay down there i'll probably just drive back at the end of the night yeah anaheim's what what do you think? Well, you've done it a million times from Disneyland. Yeah. Back from Anaheim at like 11 o'clock at night. How long does it take? 45 minutes. That's easy. Yeah, no problem. That's nothing at all. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be down there. You're staying down there. I am staying down there. So what I may do is at the end of, at the end of uh, an evening, specifically Friday night, I may head on over to Disneyland and uh, <laughs> go on Pirates yeah. and then go back to my hotel. But, uh, but What's yeah, your favorite so- place to eat at Disneyland? Like I'm not talking like Blue Bayou. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the little eateries you, know what, you go though, I'm into. Not, I wouldn't say Blue Bayou. That thing is way overpriced. Like for the like the the food is fine. Yeah, food I've only been there good. once. I'd say the food is good. I had a negative experience. I know you did. I've eaten there a couple times. The, the uh, experience was fine, but like it is the, not surprisingly, it's overpriced. They uh, 
here's me tooting my own horn about how funny I can be. They screwed us over so much with the weight. They told us, be, anyway, I'm not going to go into details. They screwed us over at the Blue Bayou. Mm-hmm. So we're sitting there stewing, my girlfriend and I, and I broke the tension by just muttering to myself, what kind of a Mickey Mouse operation is this? <laughs> and it uh, lightened the mood considerably. Just lightening the mood now. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Right. Uh, well, I will say this. My favorite, uh, my favorite experience, uh, I was able, my, my wife and I were able to go to Club 33. And, God, I'm uh, so jealous. That's a, that is a lifelong goal, and I hate I like the the like anti-consumerist punk rock part of me hates mm-hmm. that I'm like buying into hates just how much I love Disneyland because I you know I feel like I, I I shouldn't, but Disneyland is uh it's a magical magical kingdom. It's one of the happy one of the happiest places on earth. Yeah. Um, I think I would count um, I don't know. Uh, Frenchman Street in New Orleans, real New Orleans, is mm-hmm. maybe the happiest place on earth for me. But, um, uh, yeah, I would love to go to Club Thirty Three. Yeah, it's we have a we have a friend who works for uh, I think ABC, and uh, so he's sure. able he was able to put our name on a list. And by the way, like you still have to pay for the meal. Yeah, yeah. But boy, sure. oh boy, that that is like a real meal like blue bayou is like a perfectly fine meal that is that is at disneyland prices mm-hmm. and uh club 33 it's like you're going to a real place and That's so nice. that was pretty great um but my favorite place to eat at disneyland i don't remember the name of it but it's uh it's this place where right, is it right between main street and uh tomorrowland where you can go oh. and get uh, like fried chicken and stuff oh okay yeah that's pretty because i have contended and most people tend to agree with me that the only good places to eat at disneyland are in the New Orleans section, but uh, your taste being, yeah. yeah, yeah, you get some good fritters in uh, in uh, New Orleans Square. Not New Orleans Square. Is that what's it called? Is it just called New Orleans? L- Little New Orleans? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> um, but there's uh, my favorite is the place with all the jambalaya. Yeah, of course it is. Yeah, yeah, uh, that place is great. Yeah. And for those who care about this sort of thing, I don't particularly, but they uh, have. One jambalaya that is vegan. Oh, okay. I don't think it's like advertised as vegan jambalaya, but it's one of the. It's uh, a place you can go in Disneyland to eat vegan. That's really delicious. Okay, that's good to know. So, God, that's enough of that. Yeah that that came from WonderCon. We're going to be at WonderCon if you guys are going to go last weekend in March, yeah. Anaheim, California. Yeah. If you guys are going to go, shoot us an email. If we get enough emails, maybe I'll orchestrate a meetup or something i don't know in your not, hotel room I'm, yeah sure yeah that's a little creepy maybe in the <laughs> lobby how about that yeah the lobby of the super eight no not that <laughs> what you're saying oh yeah oops oh well <laughs> um okay so uh now before we get to the topic of course we're now 15 good lord 15 minutes is fine i guess but that's we're but, but we're not to the top of the show topic which I wanted to say. Oh, you I know, forgot about the top of the show topic. We'll spend maybe five minutes on it. It's not. Yeah, it since I actually don't know much about yeah. it. Okay. I haven't been following it purposefully, I would say. Uh, I did not seek it out. Uh, it just sort of found me by way of Twitter and Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like IMDb News and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, uh, okay. One thing that we failed to discuss um, because I don't think any of us were incredibly aware of it. At I the didn't time. know about it at all at the yeah. time of last. Um, so last week's episode about the Oscars, uh, I'm sure many of you know about uh, a tweet that went out from the Onion. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, I will. I'll put it this way: this is this is how people are phrasing it online. Uh, the tweet, <clears throat> excuse me, 
the tweet called uh, nine-year-old Quivenjane Wallace uh, the C-word. Yes. So um, now that is how people are – that's how they discuss it when they're talking about it. Is that that's all I just, heard about it. That, that it just called her that. And it's like, well, that's – and. And the, the and people were you know outraged, and then the editor of the Onion actually wrote an apology, which um, we will get to. Yeah, and so so first off, and then and the tweet was taken down within an hour, and so that is unfortunate because then people don't get to read the actual tweet. The actual tweet, yes, it did do it did say that, but what it actually said was this. Something to the effect of, and I don't have it right in front of me, but something to the effect of, everybody's afraid to say it, but Quivenjane Wallace is kind of a C-word. Yeah. Okay? Now, here's the thing. I read that, and I laughed. Uh, you, I didn't know what the tweet was, because, again, I hadn't been following it until about yeah. 10 minutes before we recorded. I got a chuckle out of me, too. Yeah. You know why? Because it's a joke. It's a joke. And here's and what people are often quick to say, because I've read some comments on this, is that, like, you know, if it was your nine-year-old... You, even though you're aware of it, that it's a joke, you know, you know the onion, like you wouldn't find it funny. And fair enough, maybe that's the case. However, the key, and I don't like having to explain why it is funny, but here we are. Why it is funny to me is that if they, <laughs> there is a, there is a strain of, I mean, you and I tweeted during the Oscars, not as much as we have in the past, but yeah. like. You know, and it's not unusual for people to tweet things really snarky, looking to be maybe a little bit edgy at times, and nothing is edgier than calling somebody like a C-word or, or any number sure, of things. Sure. And the idea, and so like, and it's kind of a hack thing to do, is this idea, it's like, look how edgy I am, like, hey man, we're all thinking it, but you're afraid to say it, not me, I'll say it. Like, mm-hmm. it's that kind of attitude. And the key to, to and the key to having it be Quivenjane Wallace, if you said about Meryl Streep or... Like a George Clooney, or, like pick somebody that people by and large feel a, feel positive towards, like Tom Hanks or mm-hmm. a Sandra Bullock. Okay, like those are people that most people like. Mm-hmm. And so, if you said something negative about them, like in a jokey way, some people would be like, "I recognize this as a joke," but you know what? I actually don't like them. Quivenjane Wallace is a nine-year-old girl who gave a great performance and was absolutely charming and adorable at the actual Oscars, okay? Mm -hmm. Literally nobody in the world would have any negative feeling towards her. So that is exactly why they had to have it be at her. And it wasn't really at her. It was, I I am of the opinion that it was about the general tone of Oscar tweets and and online commentary and just this, this really shitty attitude that's like it's like hey you know i'm i'm a truth teller and i'm and and saying and having like the worst possible word for the best possible person because that's going to set you apart from other people like that's what they I, were trying to capture i compl- i completely agree that it was within the um general voice of the onion you know to 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 be uh satirical or parodic like yeah. that um but also, uh, and I, I'm glad you said everything you said about why it was funny, but the thing that I want to get to is, I don't care if you found it funny. Yeah. In fact, I don't care if you're offended. It's kind of supposed to offend you a little bit. Yeah. You should be offended. But the idea that they should have to take it down and then fucking apologize for it? What kind of a world are we living in? That, that drives me insane. Yeah. That people think... So many people think that they have a right not to be offended. And that is 
horseshit. That is not what America is is built on. What like it's the same, you know. Um, do you remember the Daniel Tosh thing? The uh, what if uh, what if like five guys came out and raped this woman? Yeah, right now yeah. Thing again. I don't think that's anywhere near as funny no. as the onion thing. But a if you hear the whole story, it's clearly a joke. Mm-hmm. It's an ironic setup. The idea that she is complaining about him talking about rape and he's saying wouldn't be ironic if the things she's complaining about happened to her right now. Yeah. So it's clearly a joke setup, even if it doesn't really. There's not a whole lot of a punchline there. Yeah, uh, it's like, well, uh, it might. I'm not sure. First off, I don't even know if it would be ironic, and it certainly wouldn't be funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that I mean, so th- that one I almost want to use more of an example because it's one I don't find funny but I Mm -hmm. still think Daniel Tosh as a comedian on stage performing has every right to say that and if you're offended by it you have every right to be offended and fucking leave or whatever yeah unfollow yes unfollow the onion the the onion which is which never drops its guard or, or never drops its character yeah that they should have to apologize. I mean, I'm kind of angry at them for doing it. Yeah, and uh, I understand. Like, I mean, it was a tweet, and so, like, the thing that gets me is, like, I, in, in the apology, they said, like, you know, they're, they're, like, I don't think they said anything about, like, punishing the person who tweeted it, but they said, you know, we're going to have a, stripe, a stri- uh, slightly more, like, stringent policy. It's just, like, I think you probably already do have a stringent policy, which is it needs to be funny. Uh-huh. Mission accomplished, by the way. Like, it was not. It was not merely a tweet that says Quivenjane Wallace is a C. That's too obvious. Yeah. Now it still has that that edgy, extreme, shocking quality. But the but it was the way it was worded, and I think it totally fits with the Onion. And so, but there are people, you know, reading comments uh, in regards to the apology. People are like, I'm glad he apologized, but you know what? This is still unacceptable. They lost a they lost a reader. It's like, okay, good. They lost yes, a reader. They lost, That's how that it should is the be. Exact. And if just, you are offended by that, offended enough that you can't handle it, then yes, unfollow. They've lost a reader. That's exactly the way it works. That's that's the fucking free market of of ideas of, of culture. You yeah. just there just is don't no, pay attention to it anymore. Yeah, there's no rule that says you have to listen. You know, and yeah. just and that's you know what. Here's the thing. Here's what's awesome about Battleship Pretension. Um, David and I are political. I'd say opposites, not not in every case, in but in a lot of ways, um, uh, f- philosophical and spiritual opposites. But this is one thing that we can come together on, and it's be- and <laughs> when the liberal atheist and the conservative Christian can come together on this thing, it's got to be true. <laughs> like we all know it. <laughs> yeah, um, and yeah. I'm sh- and you know what? I'm sure that there are some listeners who were offended by that tweet, and that's I, fine. Again, um, I don't I don't think they. I think they are right to be offended. Yeah. It's offensive. And, and when I think in terms of like Quivenjane Wallace's parents and like, and, and, and undoubtedly as she gets older, she might read back this thing. I mean, there's plenty of documentation online. Like she may read about this and think, oh, that's awful. Like it could, it could hurt somebody's feelings. Now, my hope is that like, again, it's, it, it does seem clearly to be a joke. And yeah. it was interesting. I was talking also, to having your feelings hurt. Isn't the end of the world. No, and I, I maybe have, a little character building if I can be <laughs> my dad for a second. Yeah, I mean, I have my feelings hurt all the time <laughs> by and, me. Uh, yeah, I no question about that. <laughs> you know, we go back to that uh, girl with the dragon tattoo episode. But like, <laughs> I still feel bad about that. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, and so um, 
That was a joke, by the way. I'm not. I'm. I'm not I do holding. Still feel I know, but I'm not holding grudges. Um, How unlike you? Not against you, anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah. So uh, I guess I just wanted to bring it up because like that, it was something that was a a big deal. And this Oscars was, you know, it was noted for a lot of people being offended at a number of things, both having to do with the ceremony and having to do with tangential things like this tweet. And it's just yeah. one of those things where it's like, you know. Uh, uh, Mike Schmidt commented on a lot of the uh, backlash against uh, like Seth MacFarlane and basically said what we're saying. It's like it is a joke. And yeah. what you can do is you, you, your option is this. You cannot find it funny. You can unfollow. You can complain. You can do any number of things. You have a lot of options. And I won't condemn you for exercising any of those options. So are we more mad at the people who complained or... Are you mad at the onion for apologizing? I feel like I'm more mad at the onion for I'm apologizing more, and taking I'm, it down. I'm probably more mad at the onion because that's the thing. The onion at this point, like right up there with like I'd say like the Daily Show or you know like Louis C.K. Like there are there are like geniuses of American comedy and they stand for things. And the onion being so, I mean it's 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 just its profile is getting bigger and bigger all the time and for the and for the onion south park is another one like for the onion to say you know what we stepped over the line it's like no nah, that now you're saying that there is humor that steps over the line and like and especially when it's just humor that's just people talking and yeah. or or things being written like after a certain point like i mean the onion makes fun of conservatives it makes fun of christians all the time it's a, as does you know daily show and louis ck and all that like and there are times in parliament he's like oh come on guys that's not what we mean but at the same time it's like eh, it is kind of funny is funny and mm-hmm. even if i don't find it funny even if i'm mildly offended who gives a shit it's just a joke it's fine yeah you know so can i while we're on the topic of offensive things during the oscars because i don't think i mentioned this last week and there was something that Offended me a little bit. Okay. Uh, during the um, "We Saw Your Breasts" song, um, I don't think that what was the. I don't think that was the name of the song. How, I feel like it was. It was you're, you're close. Yeah. You're close. Um, I, I forgot to mention last week that it it didn't sit well with me that at least from memory, at least two of the scenes that he mentions are rape scenes. Yeah. The accused and boys don't cry. Yeah. Right. Uh, more. Well, I'm sure, I mean, you know, like, I'm sure uh, many of them were not necessarily tantalizing. I think some of them were, like, sex scenes, but maybe not tantalizing sex scenes. Um, yeah, Monster is not, like, a, it's a pretty <laughs> yeah. harrowing, like, yeah. most of the things that are happening to her and done by her aren't, like... Yeah, they're yeah. quite tragic, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that's... That, like, so that, that upset me, because from the history of women taking their tops off on screen, you couldn't stick to, like, the good-natured ones... You know, yeah. like, uh, like uh, Halle Berry and Swordfish. Yeah, and that's a, yeah. He mentions Halle Berry, and he goes with Monsters Ball. Swordfish is right there. Yeah, you could say but, Swordfish. But and here's well, the thing: know, Phoebe I, Cates, obviously. I'm but, not one you know, to. Uh, she's not at the Oscars. She's retired. <laughs> right uh, now, she I'm is. not one to. She's def- one of the, on that short list of actors who actually retire. Yeah. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer? No, no, she's still around. Yeah, who am I thinking of? Deborah Winger. She pops up from time to yeah. time. No, wait. Oh, who's um, who's married to Dan- Danny Elfman? Oh, my. I don't know. I don't follow that kind of thing. Bridget Fonda. Is she retired? 
When was the last time she was in a movie? That's a good point. Yeah, I think she's retired. Son of a bitch. And then, of course, on the male uh, side, you got Gene Hackman and, and Rick Moranis. Yeah, Rick Moranis is quite sad. Gene Hackman's well, no, older. I, it's sad for us because we don't get like right. his genius. Yeah. But it was a choice that he made and that yeah, he his, seems happy with. Yeah, his wife passed away, so he just like, okay, I'm going to be a good father of my children because yeah. they, who else do they have? Good for him. Yeah. But what I will say is that uh, I'm not one to defend the uh, the subtle nuance and satire of Seth MacFarlane uh, because I don't think it exists. <laughs> but I do think him choosing Monsters Ball over Swordfish is... Because last week, I don't think I was able to quite put my finger on why I thought that song was funny. It wasn't merely pointing out, look at all this stuff. It's kind of embodying a really stupid mindset that people have, which is like any kind of nudity, like, hey, man, I'll take any kind of nudity, a very 13-year-old kind of attitude. It's just like, oh, man, did you see Monsters Ball? That was so hot. And just like like um, just missing out on the con, like. Context means nothing as long as you see the uh, breasts. When I was in middle school, the reason I saw A Clockwork Orange <laughs> is because my friend's dad had a copy and he lent it to me. And I, I had this vivid memory. Oh, boy. Obviously, this this is a visual thing, so you won't be able to, to describe it. But I like went to his house. I had like, arranged like, during school. I was like, can I come over afterwards and borrow that movie? Because I, I wanted to watch it because I was already like a budding film geek and like yeah. you know heard about it. And... Um, so he went into his house. I came back out on the porch and he handed it to me, and I was like, "Have you watched it? Is it good?" And his response to "Is it good?" was like, "Oh yeah," <laughs> and did the like sort of making the like cupped, rounded gesture in front of his chest. Like, there's a lot of breasts in this movie. Uh, oh, it's exactly, <laughs> and that is a guy that would sing that song. Okay, yeah, but and, I think so, and you know what? Carlin has a tendency to. Um, I don't know, talk out of both sides of his mouth a little bit. There's no question about it. He tends to feed that audience while commenting on it, but not commenting on it in such a way that it will ever cause the other side of the audience to realize. Right. It's like, and one could say that makes him brilliant. Another, another way, another person could say that makes him extremely cynical. I would venture to say it's that. And it should be, and it should be noted that, uh, Ratings for the Oscars were up by one million people within the, uh, males within the eighteen to thirty-five range. Oh, brother, yeah, uh, no hope, no hope for the future. <laughs> um, okay, speaking of the Oscars, it's time for us to really continue milking the year twenty twelve and uh, do our traditional post-Oscars episode, which is our sort of individual Oscars. It's our individual achievements of twenty twelve. Yeah, episode. Let's get into it, shall we? Why don't you go first? Okay. Do we have a do we have a uh, specific man there sure are a lot of sirens by your place why are you so there's I so many... am triangulated if you will okay. by a police station a fire station and an airport okay yeah man so, yeah. oh man you got to get out of here no i love this come place. on up to north hills <laughs> you're not near you're not near anything <laughs> um, except a lot of uh, bail bondsmen so um, that's not even a joke so okay uh, what category should we start with, do you think? I was, I, I was going to leave all this up to you. Oh, boy. Okay. You know, I'm going to jump around. What the hell? Yeah, that'll be I'm fun. Gonna start with, uh, I'm going to start with the ones that I've talked about in the past so that it's, I'm not going to act like it's a big surprise. I'll start with supporting actor, which is James Gandolfini for Killing Them Softly. And it should be noted that uh, this has been a good year for him. Because um, uh, he was in that. He was in Zero Dark Thirty, and he was in uh, The Name Escapes Me. You saw it. I didn't. Wait, what? Uh, James Gandolfini. Yeah, he was in Zero Dark Thirty, and he was in that other movie that I saw. Yeah, that you thought he was great in. Now yeah, I can't he remember. he was awesome. 
But uh, I, remember, I cannot remember. Oh, that's frustrating. Was. Not fade away. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It was not fade away. Yeah. So I was, I was trying to think of a good movie, but I didn't like not fade away. Yeah. But, but you liked him in on it. Yeah. In it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so I'm a big fan of Killing Them Softly, and I've I've commented on him before. Um, that uh, man, there. I like actors that are able to use. Every ass, every part of them. By which I mean, like, there's there's nothing specific about his character in it that uh, that requires him to be a big guy. Like that character could be written as like a, a Steve Buscemi type or something like that. But it's this big guy, and so, but he's also very deflated and defeated and just exhausted. And so to see this big lumbering bear of a man so tired and just so melancholy. Um, and yet still so eager to like, not eager, but so, I don't know, so apt to mm-hmm. lash out at people, um, due to like an inner kind of frustration and, and sort of an impotent rage. Uh, it's, it's really interesting and it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful performance. He's really only in like two or three scenes, uh, and in them you get everything about this character that you need. He's not totally likable, but he's in, in fact, I would say he's very unlikable, but he's incredibly sympathetic and he uses every aspect of him, uh, of himself, by which I mean like, you know, his character is a hitman, And so you get the impression that this guy has used every means possible to kill people, including his bare hands. And so he is an imposing presence, but he is like, you know. I don't know. You get the impression this is gonna this is kind of silly imagery, but like the idea of like this great mighty animal. I said I mentioned a bear earlier. This great mighty animal that is just dying, mm-hmm. um, and and that's what you get from his performance. And it's just a uh, just really wonderful. And you know, it's one of those things that like from time to time there are actors that seem not necessarily past their prime, but the thing you know them for is over, and then they do these other things and the things that they that they do now are never going to be as high profile as this other thing but what they but they are able to take ownership of of what they are now and so he's never going to be as big as he was uh when he was tony soprano mm-hmm. um culturally people are always going to think of him as tony soprano but playing you know physically he's gotten even bigger yeah there is that okay so between I, and i i don't want to like dwell on it but like yeah. Uh, having seen all of Sopranos, go back and watch the first episode. He looks thin almost, like yeah. compared to with a full head of luxurious hair. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, is, uh, it is striking. And so, but that's the thing: you see him as like Leon Panetta, mm-hmm. and then you see him in this as this character, and he's not doing anything remarkably different with his voice or with his demeanor. But he is so different in his like confidence level and you just see like he's a surprisingly versatile actor and yeah. I like that do he's you, doing other things. Do you now. know how old he is? I don't know. I'd venture to say mid to late fifties, right? Yeah, and I but I, I, I still I guess think of him as being in his late forties. Like I think of him at the end of Sopranos. And it seems yeah. like with I don't know how old Leon Leon Panetta is in real life. I think older. Probably in his sixties, if I yeah, guess. But I mean he doesn't play him uh, I guess what I wanted to get at is through some just mostly choices that have to do with posture and composure mm-hmm. and not fade away. He seems so much older than you're yeah. used to seeing him. And it's, it's not a lot of like makeup. I think there is a little bit of gray it, 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 there, but it's, it's mostly in just like the way that he 
holds himself, yeah. even the the sort of facial expressions he makes, just looks like an older man. He's an actor who I think, the more I watch him, the more fascinated I because he is an actor that is in the moment. Just the way, just the way he moves, the way he, the way he looks at other actors, like it, it, it all feels so. It does not feel pre-planned. It does not feel rehearsed. It feels that it's it's why I think he, when he was Tony Soprano, a man of violence, he's kind of crackling with energy, and you never quite know what he's going to do. And so, having a, an actor that you cannot predict whether he's playing a somebody as controlled as Leon Panetta or somebody as just raw as the character in uh, Killing Them Softly. Like, he's just, your eye is just drawn to him and you never know what to expect. I'm willing to move on now. Okay. Um, I was looking, uh, I want to preface the whole episode with a couple things. You know, looking at my list and some of my favorite movies of the year, realizing that most of my favorite movies of the year are um, male-driven. And that once once we get to my best actress and best supporting actress we're going to be at stuff that was in honorable mentions or lower yeah, on my list yeah. which is interesting to me but um i want to mention and there's going to be a couple of these again because there were so many males for both the male ones i'm going to have two answers i'm going to cheat a little bit son of a bitch but the only the other thing in addition to male being actors being stronger my choice for supporting actor is the only person on my entire list who's in an American film, uh, which is very odd. And I'll get to him in a second. First, I want to do my honorable mention for supporting actor, All right. which is, uh, real quick, I want to mention Vitaly, Vitaly Kishenko. I mentioned when, we ta- when I did our uh, um, a best of two weeks ago, one of my, my number three movie of the year was the Russian film White Tiger uh, or Ghost Tank. Um, and I mentioned that, you know, on the page it looks like the tank driver, who's the character's name is Nadenov, and he's played by Alexei Vertkov, uh, and played very well. Um, on on the page it seems like he's the lead character, but you start to realize that it's this officer who's assigned to him to sort of like look after him because as great a tank driver as he is, and as great as he is, is at you know talking and communing with tanks telepathically. Uh, he's clearly crazy, and so they assign this officer to him, and it's uh, uh, the character's name is Fedotov, and is played by Vitaly Klyshenko, and you sort of uh, just see him sort of both, you know, exhausted as a lot of the Russians are at this point in the war by the war, but um, uh, so you, so you see a lot of that in him. You see his experience, and then you start to see the way that he. It's very subtly played, the way that... You wouldn't say that Fedotov comes to believe that Nadenov can talk to tanks, but he comes to be less sure that he doesn't believe that. It's a very subtle thing that he plays. Yeah. And um, uh, that's why I... So I'm, I'm calling him supporting actor, even though I think that he probably is, by my definition, more of a lead character, but he would... Certainly, if he were nominated for an Oscar, it would be in the supporting role. But yeah. my real choice... And we will, we've already talked about him ad nauseum. It's my favorite performance of this guy's entire career is Leonardo DiCaprio in Django Unchained. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's he's just just fantastic and playing, as we talked about two weeks ago, a character very much unlike uh, the characters that Leonardo DiCaprio has come to play, especially post, uh, especially in the 21st century. Yeah, I'd say like post the beach, he's tended toward. 
Uh, I'm sure there will be exceptions, but he is tended toward uh, grim, regretful, dour characters. They're often haunted or plagued by things. Yeah, and the one exception, and even then it's not that much of an exception, is Catch Me If You Can, which oh. he's still plagued by things, but he's he's more upbeat. But and that's you- also, uh, maybe I just have personal tastes when it comes to Leo, but I would say Catch Me If You Can is maybe number two on the list of my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio performances of all time. Yeah, he's he's really... It's odd. It's I, I'm starting to equate him with Sean Penn, an actor that I don't. I, I certainly don't think is bad. But as I've said on this show, I often think like, yes, yes, we get it. You're working very hard. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, my favorite performances of his are you know stuff like Sweet and Low Down and Milk, and sure. uh, you know Fast Times at Ridgemont High, when yeah, yeah. he just is the character and doesn't feel the need to really push. Um, not that he's bad in Mystic River, not that he's bad in Dead Man Walking, but uh, yeah. but there's something about uh, just being that being a character, and I feel like that's what DiCaprio does in stuff. I think he's I think he does. Okay. He's good in everything. I don't mean to to you know crap on him or anything, but like uh, you know the Aviator and Catch Me If You Can and uh, Django Unchained. He doesn't. Feel, it seems like he doesn't feel the need to explain the character. Yeah, uh, in and his I think that's why. As much as I thought the film was not great, I also really liked him in Shutter Island a couple of years ago because mm-hmm. I feel like he was becoming. I feel like I think the the reason I liked Catch Me If You Can so much, um, and would have called it my favorite of his performances prior to this was that it's the only one where he feels even uh, the character is clearly not comfortable in his skin. That's part of the thing. But DiCaprio as an actor feels comfortable, whereas even in Later things like The Aviator, which I like, and The Departed, which I don't love. Um, I feel like like that Sean Penn thing. I can feel him acting a little bit. Yeah. And uh, in Shutter Island, even though he's doing a lot of the same things, he seems to have maybe calmed down a little bit and seems comfortable. I, I, I can't remember where you fell on, on where you stand on Shutter Island. I like it. I like it. Uh, when I first saw it, I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. And then I saw it again, and, and uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of great things in that movie that's my memory is there's some amazing scenes and his and his performance is is a highlight it's it's quite good uh but yeah uh dicaprio is uh, is great all right moving on what's what's your next one okay so um i'll jump to i'll jump to lead actress um actress okay so i'm jumping around because i want to get the ones that i've talked about in the past out of the way um lead actress now here because you and i talk a lot about uh about um the difference between lead and supporting and that we often do not find ourselves in agreement with whatever the uh, Oscar campaign is. Uh-huh. And uh, so Anne Dowd in compliance is a lead character. I would, I would totally agree. Um, yeah. She's not supporting like, and while I was, while I was hoping she would be nominated for supporting, that's just because I wanted her to be nominated for something. And that's right, the right. one that they were pushing. Um, but no, she's the lead character. If that it, the film is very much an ensemble, but she is the lead if there is one. Yeah. Um. And, it, you know, and so I've I've talked, you know, I, I've talked about her ad nauseum myself, and just she's so naturalistic. She so seems to just understand this character, um, and she's just, you know, you she's doing bad things, but you just feel so much sympathy for her. You want to hug her and recognize she's trying to do the right thing. Uh, and she is just such a beaten down character, but not any more than anybody else. She's just, you know, like life can be tiresome and she's just 
the manager of a chicken joint and that's it that's what mm-hmm. her life is she has a you know she has a boyfriend that they're that's going to propose someday and just and that's her life it's not a terrible life but it's not a great life and it just requires a lot of her and so like and then in the midst of that this terrible thing happens and she is instrumental in it Mm -hmm. and it's such a fascinating idea so you know and one of the one of the fun things to do is go online and read comments about compliance not necessarily full reviews but comments like speci- mm-hmm. specifically like on uh, Amazon or something like that and it's so fascinating to hear how many people call her character dumb call a lot of the characters dumb um, it's even more interesting to hear people say like ah something like that would never happen in uh, Los Angeles or New York or San Francisco oh yeah isn't that fun oh. anyway I and hate so people I know That's, what they're there's just no hope. What are we, what are we even doing? <laughs> yeah, we'll get you guys next time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's uh, but it's just like, but the humanity of her performance, I think, is something that's fairly universal. You feel like you've met this woman before, and she may not be that memorable, but you certainly have no ill feelings towards her. And uh, and I, I I think it's amazing. I love it. Here's the thing. I'm gonna. This is a compliment both to Aunt Dowdy and to Great Craig Zobel's uh, screenplay. Yeah. Um, there's a real Craig's little is, is it's a real, there's a real gambit with compliance. At least for me, it felt like I wasn't I w- w- I vacillated. I wasn't 100 percent sure that I was on board with the movie until the final scene. Oh and yeah. I think he's kind of doing that on purpose, and I think he writes it very well. But it also it's a very small but very huge moment uh, that yeah. and down and down plays perfectly. And I mean, I would. If I were going to reduce it to one thing, I would say she made the movie with that last scene. That last scene is reminiscent to me, and this is high praise, and maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm trying not to be. That last scene is, to me, reminiscent of the last scene of Fargo and No Country for Old Men. Mm -hmm. Like, it just, somehow, it doesn't seem to have much to do in many ways with what we've just seen, and yet it has everything to do with it. It's just so, so wonderful. Yeah. So, okay, All moving right. on. Lead actress for me, and this is one that wasn't, didn't even quite make my honorable mentions. It was down there in the uh, barely uh, barely missing the honorable mentions down with, like, like Les Mis did, because I don't know if I've made enough of a case on the podcast for yeah. having really liked Les Mis. Um, but this is a German film directed by Christian Petzold called Barbara, and the lead character... Uh, the titular character Barbara is played by Nina Haas, and um, the story of this film is um, essentially it's uh, in East East Germany during the you know uh, when East Germany was a thing mm-hmm. um, during Soviet rule, and uh, this woman Barbara has uh, we never know quite why if she's in hiding. I mean, no, she's not in hiding. She's been essentially. Banished, punished, sent to. She's a doctor to work in a hospital in the in a rural part. She's from I can't remember where she's from, uh, a, a city. I don't know uh, if it was. It's not East Berlin. I, I'm trying to remember what uh, whatever city. She's from the big city in the in East Germany, mm-hmm. and she is being sent. We we find out that her husband is part of the sort of resistance and has uh, left, has escaped East Germany, and so. That's probably we can think that's probably part of the reason she's she's being uh, punished and um, 
and it just sort of follows her as she's working in this hospital, getting to know the townspeople, striking up a sort of friendship with uh, another doctor, but the doctor is also friends with the uh, local head of the uh, Stasi, or whatever the secret police are called, who are keeping an eye on her, whether she's doing anything wrong or not, which we don't know right away. Uh, And I guess it's sort of like I talked about Vitaly Koshenko's performance um, in, in White Tiger, that she's... It's it's intentionally difficult at any point to tell quite what she's thinking or how she's feeling, mm-hmm. and it's because she's someone who has probably you know lived uh, at, at the very least was married to someone who is who was uh, a I don't know a, a, a revolutionary or you know a, a dissident, and we can assume probably holds those opinions herself in a in a place that's closely watched, so she's guarded by nature because of because of that but the um the way that that makes not only the movie emotionally and thematically rich but just from a plot standpoint where we it it has this sort of mystery element to it because you don't quite know what's going on because you don't quite know what she's going to decide to do until and she makes a number of decisions, and we learn a little bit about her. Um, and the film, the final five minutes of the film or so, and this is I'm going to spoil it, not going to spoil it, um, is uh, hinges on her making a very big decision, and we don't know until those final moments which way she's going to go because mm. she plays it. But it's not like a trick; it's it's all part of the character. It's a really it's a really taut and. Uh, uh, economical and uh, just really engaging movie. And what was her name again? The actress's name is Nina Haas. Okay. The character's name is Barbara, which is okay. the name of the movie. Right. Yes. All right. That sounds very interesting. Which is the only film that I have seen at the what's the Sundance Cinemas? Where what the what the oh, the, former what the Sunset, Sunset Five, Five yeah, used yeah. to be? Okay. Uh, um, have you been there since they? No, I haven't. It? It's like you walk in the lobby and it's like okay, this is pretty much the same, but then. Like, it's like, how did they find the room to do this in the old Sunset 5? Interesting. Like, it's... I guess I have to go now. It's stadium seating. What? Yes. Right? How does that make sense within the Sunset 5, which wasn't? How do they make that happen? I have no... Like, did they eliminate half the seats or something? Like, that's uh, I, very strange. Yeah, it's it's very strange. There's a whole upstairs lounge area above... Like, you know when you're facing the concession counter yeah now you can get your concessions get your beer and wine and stuff which they now sell and walk up the steps to this lounge where they have couches and tables and shit the, i gotta go to this place it sounds great it's just a wall before i don't know where <laughs> yeah. they found it yeah um but yeah uh, surely there's got to be some kind of load-bearing thing that they tore out it's like <laughs> yeah, and there's gonna be a horrible disaster the sun, the uh the sundance five disaster or whatever yeah um so anyway that was a little aside for uh, angelinos about the sundance cinemas or whatever it's called yeah that uh, sounds right yeah uh, yeah all right what's next okay uh next i think i'll go with my because uh, we 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 always do like kind of the top categories and then sort of a miscellaneous um okay i'll do sort of an honorable mention miscellaneous which is unfortunate because i don't have uh this is a last-minute decision, and I did not write down the name of the costume designer for Anna Karenina. But um, oh, but she won, right? She won no, the Oscar. I, th- I think Les Miserables won uh, costume. I don't think you're right. I think you're wrong. I might be wrong. I, I don't recall. 
Well, you go on. I'm going to look it up. Oh, I do go on. <laughs> so, um, but uh, yeah, whatever the name is, um, the uh, what I like about the costumes is that I, I found myself reminded almost of uh, of like the costumes in a Wes Anderson film, in that each character, like uh, Count, like uh, Vronsky and and Anna and uh, and um, Jude Law's character, uh, Karenine. Okay. Um, you uh, know, her name is Jacqueline Duran, and she won. She did. Okay, great. All right. Um, and so, and deserve to. And so, well, now that I remember that she won, I feel like I shouldn't talk about it. But like, <laughs> what I like about it is that it, it sticks with what I was talking about, just the the theatricality of it all, and the idea of of staging this as if it, it is something being staged. And so, the characters. They are wearing it, it, not unlike the the makeup for um, Cloud Atlas, like kind of calls attention to itself. Like these characters' costumes, somehow they look so costumey. They don't feel like they they are totally lived in. They feel like something the actors have put on to play these roles, mm-hmm. and and yet they still are beautiful and and impeccable and all that sort of thing. And so, um, so it it winds up being these two things. It, it, you know they they seem right for the period and and right for the characters, but they also just have a an inherent theatricality to them that I think uh, really adds to the overall feel of the film. Um, that's that's the thing that I love about Anna uh, Anna Karenina is just how complete it is. Like the art direction, the music, the uh, the performances, the costume, like it all seems to be of a piece. It all fits together. But uh, so that was sort of the honorable mention. The uh, the real the the real one is a uh okay so i'm not i apologize in advance i'm not going to be able to say these names correctly but uh uh eco uh uais uais uh yayan ruhian and gareth evans uh the action choreography of the raid redemption oh um now you and i Good talked call. about this on the uh, the video but mm-hmm. uh you know with like kung fu movies and and just you know brawler type movies, I tend not to like the action because it feels it feels choreographed. It feels kind of uh, insular and soulless. Mm. Um, whereas this, it felt so raw. It did feel like it. It really just felt like a bunch of guys who knew what they were doing, trying to kill one another, yeah. as opposed to. With with other films, it feels like guys who know what they're doing trying not to kill one another, and there's a big difference. This it feels so That's like very well put. I would agree with that. Yeah, even like, though I like those movies, but I do I do agree with that. Sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, you saw the movie, you know what I mean. Like it just seems like holy shit. Like this is like every every uh, fist that lands, it feels like it wasn't supposed to happen. Uh-huh. And that's the idea. Like it's like the guy who got hit, he wanted to block that, and it did not work. You know, and that's and you feel like that. It just it adds this this element. And I found myself several times during the movie. I don't think I made a noise. I might have. I don't recall. But the noise inward was oh, oh and that's and well, that's what it should be. The part uh, I won't spoil it, but the part with the broken door. That's yeah. The entire theater I was in went went oh. The one uh, the one that they that they that everyone made a noise, and I will be as vague as possible. When the guy gets thrown off. And lands. Oh yeah, yeah. That one got an audible response <laughs> from everybody, including me. And so that's the thing. It's just, it just, it feels so, th- so 
I said the I said it earlier in the moment, and it's it's very you are there like it's so it's so vital and full of life, and so I, I just love w- that choreography. Do you wonder? That's a good one. That, that's a good choice. Do you wonder how many people got seriously hurt making that movie? D- did you say? Do I wonder that? Yeah, because I do. No, I prefer not to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll do. Um, I, I've got a co- uh, honorable mentions. I could go on and on for for this sort of yeah. Uh, because there's so many, but they'd be obvious. Obviously, visual effects for Life of Pi, uh, cinematography for The Master, which I looked up the guy's name, Mihai Malamari Jr. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, uh, and then, obviously, I don't know if this is obvious. If you listen to the podcast I listen to, this is obvious. But Alexander Burner for uh, editing Cloud Atlas, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, uh, I know sometimes we joke that like you... Sometimes they get the award for most editing or most makeup, yeah. and Cloud Atlas would fall into that category. Of you know, telling six stories concurrently is a big job for the editor, but he does it very smoothly. I think there is something to be said, and I, I don't remember. But that's still an honorable mention. But go on. I think I, I don't remember what we said this about, but I think it was last episode. But like, while there are some things that I don't like about Cloud Cloud Atlas, like it is put together in an almost flawlessly. Like mm-hmm. no, like. The minute you feel like you are pretty much done with the scene, the, it moves right on. And, like, it never lingers. You never get bored. And it's also never jarring when you move from one no. time period to another. Yeah, it seems... it's It, it reminded me in many ways of The Hours, uh, uh-huh. which goes from one time period to another and just in a seamless way. And, by the way, I recently bought the uh, score for Cloud Atlas. Beautiful. Yeah, it's, that's, it's, a, uh, that's a big part of Our friends over at the... Um, Slash Filmcast did uh, an uh, Oscar post Oscar wrap up episode probably at the same time we were doing ours, mm-hmm. um, and uh, talked about how maybe the biggest one of the biggest sort of injustices this year. I mean, everybody's talking about Ben Affleck not being nominated for director, but Cloud Atlas not being nominated for original score. Oh yeah, it's kind of nuts. Yeah, it is beautiful. Uh, my real honorable mention or not honorable mention. My real what are you calling this? Miscellaneous. The miscellaneous uh, thing, uh, and because I. I'm going to keep talking about this movie until it gets distribution and everyone fucking sees it. It's White Tiger, and it's for sound design. Oh, oh because, yeah, yeah. Uh, this is a, it's a war movie, and there are battles, and those battles are very loud, as they would be. I mean, they're probably not as loud as they would be if you were actually standing next to a tank when it fired, <laughs> fired a, 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 a round. Um, but it's it's... It's very loud, but it's also loud. Um, sort of like how I talked about Nina Haas's performance being, uh, it needs to be closed off both for the character and for the necessities of the film. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yes, White Tiger is is loud um, in in a way that is necessary for a war film. Uh, to be you know unsettling to be shit you know to not to not make the war scenes enjoyable you know in a, or at right. least not in a, in a in a spectacle type way but also it needs to be loud because you need to get the impression i know this sounds crazy everything i say about this movie sounds crazy but you need to get the impression that these tanks are yelling at one another that they're hmm. communicating uh, you know and that this is some sort of statement of the future of technology and the future of 
technology is to uh you know if i talk about this idea of the singularity that humanity as we know it will be uh rendered obsolete by technology and so the the sound these tanks make when they're shooting at each other is so deafening and so consuming that there is nothing else there's just explosion and then this the splintering of the wood of that uh, if it hits a, a house or 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 the you know denting in of the metal of the other tank by the it's just it, it's incredibly destructive and overpowering uh sound that is uh, as much as it is it is as it is destructive it's also the sound of a new future being born hmm. if that makes sense uh and there are other elements to the sound design you know i've talked about how um as I talked about two weeks ago, there's a number a number of scenes in which Russians and Germans are talking to one another, and um, the uh, uh, the uh, the filmmaker who I we got confirmation from a listener he's a man. Um, the filmmaker leaves in, does not cut around to find a way around the translations. Everything the Russian says has to be translated into German. Yeah. The German responds in German. It has to be translated into Russian. And it goes. There's four people in a two person conversation. And uh, it's very smoothly. I guess this is more sound, sound editing than sound mixing or whatever. But it's a, uh, it's it's very smoothly done. Hmm. Uh, and and there's a scene at the end that I won't give away. I, I alluded to it in the in, in my review. There's a scene at the end that's just a conversation between two people. It's the very end of the film. We have not seen these two people at all the entire film so far. Hmm. In um a room lit only by a fire. One character is in darkness. One person is lit by the fire. And the voice of the person talking has so much, so much weight and weariness to it. And contrast that with the crackling of the fire. Like I can hear it. I mean, it's been at this point, three months since I've seen the movie and I can hear this person talking and hear Mm -hmm. the, the fire crackling today. It's a, the minute like this I said, thing I'm not, is released, I'm, I'm going to... Yeah. I, I got to snatch it up on Blu-ray, preferably. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to stop talking about it until until everyone uh, has seen <laughs> well, it. Well, surely you have to stop talking about it at some point, right? <laughs> I emailed the PR person the other day to find out if there'd been any any news, and, and she said, no, there's still no... Oh, man, that sucks. Still no distribution. Uh, it's too bad. Too okay. bad. All right, what's next? Uh, next up, I'll go with uh, Writer. Okay. And uh, so this is going to be kind of a strange choice. Uh, his name is Michael Wallach, and his it is his first film, and it is called The Bay. It is a oh. horror film uh, directed by uh, Barry Levinson. And so I will say this, uh, having read the original screenplay of uh, Rain Man, uh, Barry Levinson is not above uh, totally rewriting a script. Um, and yet still letting that person have uh, all the credit. Rain Man did win Best Original Screenplay. And uh, if it had been, if, if, if it had remained untouched, that movie would have been absolutely horrible. And there are people that don't love it now, that don't really like it now. I don't like it very much. I think there's a lot of good in that movie, but like, boy, oh boy. Although, um, I remember a while ago, a long time ago, on the Paul Goebel show, they were talking about, I don't think we were on this episode, but sometimes I, like my memory bleeds into... Yeah. They were talking about it, like who was the first like at, when you were like uh, a young like boy who was the first like adult woman you found sexually attractive 
Mm. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a it's a step up from, like, you find other, like, girls your age or even girls your age that are on TV yeah. cute. But finding, like, an adult woman to be sexually attractive. Uh, that woman from Rain Man and Hot Shots Part Two uh, and yeah. Pee Wee's uh, uh, Big Top Pee Wee. What is her name? Ga- I do not. I do Ga- not. Gabrielle. Oh, I'll figure. I don't it recall. Out. Yeah, mine was uh, Kim Basinger from Batman. So oh, good one. Um, okay, but yeah. So uh, the Bay is okay. So it's it's a found footage movie basically, and so there's probably a lot of imp- improvisation in there. Valerina Golino. Ah, yes. Um, there's probably a lot of improv because it's uh, found footage, mm-hmm. but it's structured so well. That's the thing. Those movies, like, I saw a terrible one called uh, Bigfoot, The Lost Coast Tapes. It was awful. And and I saw um, Chronicle, which is a pretty good movie, but the found footage aspect of it I don't like. I feel like like I won't stop talking about White Tiger until people see it. You won't stop talking about Bigfoot until everyone knows that you hate it. No, no, no. It stu- uh, Struck by lightning is the one I won't stop talking about. <laughs> right, right. But you know what? Bigfoot, the Lost Coast Tapes is the one that I use as an example of. I saw a terrible uh, found footage movie called Bigfoot, the Lost Coast Tapes, and yet Struck by Lightning is still my least favorite movie of last year. That's the one I will use as an example for how bad this other movie is. And so, um, but like, you know, found footage is a very tricky genre and so it requires a lot of structure. It requires, like, for it to be good, it requires uh, a solid structure, believable characters that don't seem like movie characters, um, and and especially for it to be horror, it needs to be revealed in a certain way. And what what uh, Michael Wallach does is he he has like because it also there's this question that people have about like uh, you know when you see a found footage movie, it's like. Well, first off, who found the footage? Mm-hmm. And also, how convenient that this footage matches the three-act structure so well. Okay? <laughs> and what I like about uh, about Michael Wallach is that, and what he does with the Bay, is that he has a character within the film who is a reporter, and she has gathered all this footage from every different mm. source. It can be Skype conversations. It can be... And then the... You know, it can be... Uh, uh, like police car uh, dashboard cameras or something like that, and so the the biggest suspension of disbelief is how did she get all this stuff? But whatever, like it, it, there's a purposeful mm-hmm. quality behind it. Whereas other found footage movies, there really really isn't a purposeful quality, and then it just sort of attains that, and then yeah. that's what you have to. That's how you need to disp- suspend your disbelief. But in having all of in in gathering it from all these different things, and in, and basically having a large cast of this, of like everybody in this town. And you see like Skype conversation between two teenage girls that you, and you only see that one thing from them, that one conversation and putting all that together to make one film that works incredibly well is very frightening. Uh, like Barry, Barry Levinson does a, does a great job. I recommend everybody see the Bay. Um, but also like it is very much a function of, it's script as well, specifically the structure, and it is his first feature film. So uh, okay. seek it out. Um, I'll quickly, d- I'm not going to talk at length about either of these, but I'll quickly divide my screenplay into Adapted, which goes to Tom Tickfair, Andy Wachowski, and Lana Wachowski for Cloud Atlas, and Original, which goes to Django Unchained. I'll, I'll defend Django Unchained a little bit because I've heard even people who like it 
a lot of um, complaints about its its uh, its structure or its seeming lack of one because it does have you know uh, two parts really, mm-hmm. and then it has this second. It has like a second third act. Yeah, in, in a lot of ways, but I think having seen it three times, I've come to. Uh, just like having seen Inglorious Bastards three times, I came to appreciate um, the way that that film, that film's very specific structure, which is, with some exceptions, the structure of um, Inglorious Bastards is the same scene over and over again, but maybe slightly more intense mm-hmm. with a different outcome each time. Whether it's violence or not, it's like... Every scene is a long dialogue, dialogue scene where the tension grows and grows and grows and then is released at the end. Yeah. And it just keeps getting more and bigger. Anyway, we're not talking about Glorious Bastards. With Django Unchained, um, he's telling... It's much more of an uh, of an epic in the in the traditional sense, you know? it's it's It sort of feels more like uh, Lawrence of Arabia, maybe, in the, in, in the, in the fact that it's uh, in many ways made up of smaller stories. Yeah. Um, to tell a, a large story, but then I think when you realize that King Schultz, the character played by Christoph Waltz, tells um, Django in an almost comically brief fashion the story of Siegfried and Brumhilde, um, and then we see in an almost comically extended fashion that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. play out you know um and and that's why the more i think about it that that ending uh means more to me and i'll i'll start to get vague here but the three things that he must that siegfried has to do mm-hmm. is to climb the mountain slay the dragon and then walk through fire mm-hmm. and i think people maybe have when they only see it once when they get to the end they forget that because Fooling Calvin Candy, getting to Candyland, that's climbing the mountain. Mm-hmm. And then, again, I'll, I'll get vague from here on, they have to slay the dragon. And because the dragon is an actual uh, entity, actual enemy, mm-hmm. traditionally you think, okay, the dragon's been slain, the movie's over now. It's yeah. time for the denouement or what have you. But as we've been instructed earlier, earlier there's... After the dragon is slain, there's still going to be another test, yeah. and that's and and the fact that Django has to face this test on his own, unlike he's had a companion for the rest of it. He has right. to uh, he has to be removed at a at a remove from his goal, and then he has to walk through fire. Uh, it's a really beautiful structure to me. The more I think about it, the more times I see it. And there is uh, actually the the possibility that the dragon is not what we think it is. The dra- like it's easy to say the dragon is this person that could in fact be in a, a whole institution, um, yeah. which which and a multi a multi tiered institution. Yeah. Um, well, you made the point that it, like in video game speak, the final boss is not who you think it would be. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> which might, by the way. <laughs> minimize the uh, the power of that ending but uh, and that's not what i what i intended to do so i don't know by the way in the interest of moving things along i don't know if you were also going to do best director but it's, i am going to do best director it's quentin tarantino for me too okay. i think i already talked about why so let's how about you just do best director okay 
Um, which I will not do yet. I'll okay. do it. I'll do it at the end. Um, and by the way, like obviously, for a lot of these, like I would go with like a, a Paul Thomas Anderson or or any number of things. But by and large, I wanted to stay away from like my top ten, with the exception of like Ann Dowd, because uh-huh. um, I just because I feel like I've I already covered a lot of a lot of this uh, in our top tens. Yeah. So I tried to go with stuff that I probably would not be talking about otherwise. So, um, so I'll go with supporting actress and, uh, I'm not sure how passionately I feel about this, but why not? Uh, Charlize Theron in Snow White and the Huntsman. Um, <laughs> I, uh, it, the, and as much as I love that movie, the one aspect of it, I'm not entirely on board with oh, Charlize I, Theron. You know, it might, I, I like her performance. It might be more just the way the character is and, and what that character is, um, but this idea of uh, just respecting the audacity of her kinda, playing yeah, every second at at eleven, kind of yeah. <laughs> but you know what? Here's the thing. Okay, so obviously the film is first and foremost a visual marvel uh, with wonderful art direction, costumes, and visual effects, and that's what it is more than anything. Um, and with the uh, you know the Wicked Queen and all that, um, we do have Charlize Theron. I wouldn't like not necessarily overplaying it, but it's always heightened as it should be. You know, you want a performance that matches the the world that we're living mm-hmm. in, and I think she does that. But also, this she makes the character both sympathetic and not. Like it's easy to, you know, you find this with a lot of like superhero movies or or you know revisionist westerns or something where the the villain like has had something done to them, and so their evil is at least understandable. Like you can see how it might, how they might arrive there. Mm-hmm. And so, and such is the case with uh, Charlize Theron, yeah. but the film does not necessarily apologize for it. It merely says, yeah, yeah. this is where it came from. And, and Just you doesn't see, let her off the hook. Exactly. And so you see her, uh, you see a character who has been deeply wounded and you get a really strong sense of that. And you also get a strong sense of just genuine, bitterness and so in the midst of this really heightened performance in an incredibly heightened film you actually get uh, recognizable humanity it may not be something that you like but it's Mm -hmm. something that at least gives depth to that character and I think that's that's something that is hard to do and uh, and I respect her ability to do it okay by the way if we were doing production design Snow White and Huntsman would get my production design no question one and also, I know I said Life of Pi, but honorable mention for visual effects, if only for the part where Charlize Theron turns into a bunch of birds, and the birds turn into a bunch of tar, and then she climbs out of the tar. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and you know what? I, for, I knew I was going to like this from the trailer, and uh, I sure did. I do like that whole mirror thing. Yeah. I know I know it's weird, but like, it's an example where it looked like a practical effect, and it might have been. Mm-hmm. Like, it probably wasn't. Right. But the fact that I don't know, that's, that's a good. win. Yeah. All right, um, supporting, or I'm sorry, lead, wait, where are we? Supporting, supporting actress. actress. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I'm going with something that was in my honorable mentions. It is uh, Benoit Jaco's Farewell, My Queen. And uh, now when I mentioned this in my honorable mentions, I talked about a movie from, I think, 94 called A Single Girl, which a lot of people, I think, should see if you haven't. Um, Benoit Jaco, uh, I'm, I'm probably mangling it, um, made... And the the lead in that movie almost 20 years ago uh, was a young 
woman named Virginie Ledoyen, whom, Amer- like I said, American audiences know her mostly as the female lead from the beach. Um, she's been in some other things in uh, America. I, I just am not pulling them right now. But I knew her. I knew her first from um, Patrice Chereau's. I, I always forget if it's Patrice Chereau or Patrice Lacan. But mm. Patrice Chereau's uh, "Those Who Love Me Can Take the Train." Oh, Patrice O'Neill. Uh, That's yeah, who it was. Yeah. Um, uh, that was where I first knew her, and then I saw a single. Girl, then I saw the beach, and then I saw a single girl. Um, and she. All these years later, I'm sure she's worked with them in the interim, but all these years later, reunites with Benoit Jacot to be in Farewell, My Queen. Uh, and, and not as a lead character. As, as I'd say, maybe the third at best, if not fourth or fifth, um, sort of lead character in the in the movie. Uh, uh, Leah Seydoux um, plays the lead uh, again, American audiences would know her as one of the daughters from the opening scene of *Inglorious Bastards*, mm. um, and she is uh, she works at Versailles, and her whole job is to tend to the library, the personal book collection of Marie Antoinette, and um, uh, and occasionally read to mm-hmm. Marie Antoinette. Um, and so she develops a sort of compassion for Marie Antoinette at the same time Marie Antoinette has developed a passion for another member of the court. Uh, Marie Antoinette is played by Diane, Diane Kruger. Uh, but this other member of the court is the Duchess Gabrielle de Polignac, uh, who was a real person. And there really were rumors that Marie Antoinette and uh, the Duchess de Polignac had a uh, love affair. Um, and... Again, as I said two weeks ago, in Pharaoh My Queen, they are more than rumors. It is, it is a fact of the movie that they mm-hmm. are uh, having this affair. And Virginie Ledoyen mostly essentially has to be... She has very, very few lines in the movie. She has to be both beautiful, which um, comes uh, clearly comes easily to Virginie Ledoyen, but also has to be... A, intoxicating and alluring in other ways uh without being able to talk very much she's often seen at a distance or while sleeping um but then she in addition to all those things all those reasons you see that Marie Antoinette has fallen for her she has to be her own person who makes her own decisions and has her own reasons for not entirely Returning Marie Antoinette, Antoinette's love, even though they're having this affair, it's clear clear that that Marie Antoinette is much more in love with her than 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 she is with Marie Antoinette. Hmm. And uh, uh, I use the word economy when talking about um, Barbara, and I would say the same thing here about her performance, uh, Virginie Ledoyen's performance in particular, that she doesn't have a lot of scenes, and in those scenes, she doesn't have a lot of lines, and um, she shows you so much of who this who this woman is and shows you so much of why she is uh so desired it's hmm. a it's a it's a fantastic performance and and uh i think Virginie Ledoyen has in her to be someone like a i'm try uh you know middle-aged or older actresses like Juliette Binoche or Helen Mirren 
you know, or Julie Christie, who uh, in their younger years, um, you know, were often uh, even Charlize Theron. You know, yeah. I would I don't know if she's quite middle aged, but um, someone who is in the younger years maybe cast mostly for being attractive. Yeah. Um, and will probably have a long career into her her eighties, maybe like Emmanuel Riva, uh, if she's if she's lucky, um, turning in actually really really good work i think she's mm-hmm. uh version of the doyen is the the whole package all right all right sounds interesting yeah okay so um i'm gonna go with uh lead actor and then and then director so what well, not not right now i'll get to director after this so um okay <clears throat> uh, i thought it was gonna be ben affleck you kill two birds with one stone no no i don't think so um he uh, uh, there, I I don't dislike Argo. There's a lot there, but like, man, he sh- there's nothing to that lead role. Like, there is nothing there. Yeah, he's the least interesting character in the movie by far. And I do think if he had cast somebody else, nothing against Ben Affleck as an actor. I think he can be good. But if he, if he had cast someone else, that they could have, it could have lent weight to the character just by virtue of somebody being more watchable like think about like the character is is uh you know his uh i don't know what national like what nationality specifically but it's like you know latino Latino, and so like imagine if that role was played by benicio del toro oh yeah you know uh i first went to benjamin bratt oh yeah that that wouldn't be bad either like just actors that that are just immensely more not that they're they're more watchable but they're just more interesting just uh you know suddenly like Ben Affleck, you just you're on board with him as a person. Like you just kind of he's just likable. Benicio del Toro, it's like I don't like. Like it's like oh this he's playing a character with a drinking problem. These all these people are going to die. Like there's <laughs> yeah. no question about it. That's neither uh, here nor there. Did you real quick speaking of the Onion as we were there? Did you see their little thing that was about like before the Oscars, like handicapping the Oscars, and it was like Argo's a favorite, but it might get dinged for all the scenes featuring Ben Affleck being out of focus because there was no one behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's nice. See, I mean, they got it worked out. <laughs> yeah. Um, that and did you read their uh, the the editorial written by Daniel Day Lewis about how <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he, he thinks Abraham Lincoln deserved to die? Yeah. That's so, um, okay. Uh. It is a shame when an actor gets locked into a part so much that they are not taken seriously as an actor anymore. Specifically a part of like a much derided thing. Robert Pattinson hmm. was in the Twilight series. Mm-hmm. I only saw the first film and he was fine in it. You know, uh, He was in Harry Potter, uh, which he was fine in. There's not much of a role there. Uh, in David Cronenberg's Co- Cosmopolis, however... He, um, I think, does ahead, a. He he does amazing, really amazing work. First off, like it's based on a novel by uh, Don DeLillo, who has a way, and especially the way he's writing this character. I mean, the dialogue is almost impenetrable, but he, the the actor, has to know what he means at all times, mm-hmm. and then, and he has to be kind of emotionless, but he's also just seething with emotion underneath because of what is happening in his life uh on that day and so uh and there are scenes as with any uh Cronenberg film there are scenes of humor right before scenes of horror and there are scenes mm-hmm. of like 
emotional coldness right before scenes of like sensuality and you need an actor that can do all of those things seamlessly without it seeming too jarring and that character as written could seem jarring could seem incongruous but robert pattinson manages to tie it all together as this one as this one guy who you know he's attractive he's young he seems to just have it together but in actuality, he is coming apart, and we have to be able to see that without it being too obviously telegraphed. And, you know, I think it's a shame. I think people uh, write him off too easily because of his involvement with the Twilight films. Um, mm. And uh, and I think, you know, watching this, uh, I always found myself just really... And the camera focuses on him a lot, like other characters come and go, even played by very significant performers. Um but it's very much his movie the whole way through, so it's not like it's not like he steals his own movie or anything like that. But he does have a lot of it. Carry, you know, he is carrying a lot of the movie on his shoulders, and he is more than able to do that. And so I'm actually very excited to see what he does next. Uh, I buy. I haven't seen Cosmopolis, but uh, I buy it because until this year, the only thing I had seen him in was Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, yeah. which. I think based on the set necessity of that role and of it being kind of subjective from Harry's perspective is not, was not a very demanding role. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then I saw him this year in Bellamy, which was not a very good movie, but I quite liked him and I quite liked that he, uh, held his own against mm-hmm. people like Uma Thurman and, uh, and some others. Yeah. I mean, uh, he goes in this film. I mean, he's playing against uh, a number of very notable, kind of powerhouse actors maybe not powerhouse like like a like robert de niro but like just very strong screen presences and you would not think of him as a strong screen presence but he becomes one over almost the almost the moment he shows up on screen and it's just it's it's a that's a movie that has really kind of grown in my mind i remember liking it at the time but i my mind keeps returning to it and when it does it always goes first and foremost to his performance man i i respond to david cronenberg as a director in general, but, and other people have said this, but like he is a strong director of actors and he can mm-hmm. get great performances out of people that you wouldn't expect. Um, and so I think he has, I think Robert Pattinson was stretched by, uh, by this film. And, uh, like I said, I just, uh, I hope that as years go on, uh, and the twilight series is, gets further and further in his past. I hope that, uh, that people will, like I said, with uh, James Gandolfini and, and The Sopranos, like I hope that, uh, although that was a good thing, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I hope that people start to see him as his own, as a, as a different thing, as his own person. You know what else is good about David Cronenberg and and actors that I just started thinking when you said that is that not only does he go to getting good performances, but he is so good at using the camera to accentuate the performance you know what i mean like there are certain things like um uh who did uh james foley's glengarry glen ross Mm -hmm. where um you know there's some there's some nice sort of primary colors in in the in the lighting and 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 shadows uh but mostly he puts he chooses to put the camera in places that let the actors do their work and kind of gets out of the way a little bit. And that's yeah. a, a valid choice for something like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. But David Cronenberg, I think goes one step further and really tailors his camera to the individual performance and moves it in, in such a way, uh, 
you know, you think about the the bathhouse fight scene in Eastern Promises, and he's not just shooting it like an action scene, though mm-hmm. it is. He's also shooting it in a way that uh, that just through the the, the movement and and the and the framing <laughs> and the composition very much highlights the sort of lithe physicality of Viggo Mortensen. Yeah, and there's a scene that is actually it's been commented on before. I think I even opened my review with it. Um, there's a scene cause, uh, Robert Pattinson's character is just rolling across New York in a uh, limo yeah. and this limo is very high tech and can do anything he needs. And as he goes across the city, like people will get in the limo and he'll do whatever business he has to do. And then, uh, then they'll leave and he'll just keep going. It's basically just like a mobile office. Uh-huh. Uh, and there's a scene where he is talking with a uh, female uh, coworker uh-huh. that I, and I do not, I don't believe they're romantically involved, but that does not, and it, which is to say they're not intimate with each other, right. but that does not stop him from uh, uh, double booking himself, handling some business with her while also getting his prostate checked by his doctor. <laughs> and so he is, conducting the meeting while bent over and of course the the camera's right in his face and so you see him listening and talking while every once in a while there's just a little wince and it's and it's a really great it's a really great performance and there that's where some of the humor comes in but also the camera's right there and that's the thing i haven't seen is robert pattinson show a sense of humor so yeah there's some good stuff in there looking forward to that um all right then i will go best actor again it's a it's a double um honorable mention goes to denis levant from Holy Motors, we talked at length about how much he carries the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I use carry the word carry uh, intentionally because it's a very physical performance. So it's something I seem to have been, with Viggo Mortensen, but also with Virginie Ledoyen, like um, uh, embodying characters through physicality mm-hmm. is something that he does both with his main character and then on a second level with each of the different 11 characters that he plays, mm-hmm. that his main character plays. Uh so that's impressive, but I'm going to go with my from my main one with Jean-Louis Trintignant from Amour. Yeah, because um, uh, it's kind of a shame that Emmanuel Riva got all the uh, got all the press, especially since it's really his movie. No, yeah, very it's his much story. So. Yeah, I mean, it's her story too. But it, uh, I mean, it, he's the one who goes through the major journey. Yeah, um, or at least one that we can see a little. Uh, we can see a little more clearly emotionally but i also think we because yeah she goes through a journey too um of like being i think quick to give in to her illness wanting to succumb kind of wanting it to be over and then sort of realizing that for his sake maybe she shouldn't you know give up so easily but then coming they come to a common ground i think um but we process her journey through him i think mm-hmm. uh and that, i think that's just the way the screenplay is written um but uh it, it's uh another performance that uh this is something i keep talking about and maybe it's cliched but uh it's not done it's largely done not through spoken dialogue Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of times that he's um either either not talking or the things that he's actually saying aren't what's important uh, or or, you know uh, you know i think about i mean obviously he talks to his wife but it's 
he might as well be alone at times, you, yeah. you know, um, she's so incapacitated. And so it's not really about what he's saying, but I also think about him yelling at the caretaker, um, uh, which is, uh, and I like, I like that scene actually. I, I kind of had forgot about it until I just mentioned it. Yeah, me too. Um, but we get sort of a glimpse maybe of what he must seem like to the caretaker who, to whom old people, at the brink of death is a common everyday experience. Yeah. And that he probably just seems like a cranky old coot, old coot a little bit. Yeah. You know? Uh, but we also see where his, where his frustration, where his rage is, is coming from. But let's get to what I, uh, you know, we talked about this two weeks ago and I don't think we mentioned my favorite single scene in any movie in 2012 which is a completely wordless scene. Um, it's the second time it happens in the movie. Uh, Pigeon has gotten loose in the apartment. Oh, yeah. And, and we, when we see it earlier, uh, a pigeon gets in, and he sort of very, you know, to the point, just sh- shoes it toward the open window and yeah. gets it back out. The second time, he starts trying to do that, and then he makes a decision where he closes the window. Mm-hmm keeps the, the the pigeon in this room, grabs a blanket, and tracks it around the room, trying to trap it under the blanket. He's, yeah. you know, frail. He can't, like, lunge at it, so he's sort of tossing the blanket, and the pigeon will move away. And it goes on a little longer than you expect it will, and it's completely wordless. Yeah. And it's, I think, him processing what he can't process with his wife, because she's another person, and she has decisions to make of her own, and the things aren't in his control. So... Mm-hmm what he decides is that with this thing, with this pigeon, I am going to make this happen on my own terms. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be completely in control. It's not going to happen until I'm ready for it to happen. Then I will get the pigeon and I will let it go on my own terms, yeah. which is what he wants to do with his wife. And he can't because she's a person. Yeah. Uh, and that scene, him getting the pigeon out of the apartment and getting that sort of, closure even if it's closure by proxy is what allows him to move forward into the final uh scenes of the film you know i compare that scene in my mind to (laughs) so i never really i think i mentioned this on the show somewhat recently i never really understand why gene hackman won best actor for uh, the french connection at least i didn't used to Uh and i was just like there's nothing i mean because when i was younger when i first saw it like i was like well he's not saying anything like it's not a it's not a dialogue driven film by any stretch so it's like so what is he doing and it's like well it's a very physical performance Mm -hmm. and he's just running he's just chasing all the time and that tells you more about his character than any dialogue him saying like ah you know uh, my wife and i got divorced you know whatever the hell (laughs) all all that all that usual (laughs) stuff like it's just like okay i can see why this man is desperately lonely because this is how obsessed he is and so like you know we like that scene is who this guy is in microcosm. He is patient, he is deliberate, uh-huh. and he will not give up. Yeah. And in in a very loving way, like he certainly doesn't want to hurt the pigeon and and yeah. and this is how he is with his wife. He's just going to he's going to do what is required of him, whatever that might be, whatever he feels that to be, whatever she asks him and that sort of thing. But uh but like 
and it's nice and drawn out. Like you said, it goes on longer than it than it feels like it should, and that that's true. Or that it feels like it's going to. Then it feels like yeah, yeah, and it, that, such is the nature of uh, of Hanukkah uh, as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, but that's the idea. Is like as long as it's going to go on, that's how long he's in for. Uh, he's in for for the long haul, and and yeah. it's a really interesting performance and it's one that i i kind of in a weird way compare to popeye doyle there's a certain degree of not necessarily obsession but just total commitment to whatever it is he's doing i also wonder how do they get the pigeon to move out of the way is that actually just what he just said i assume so yeah 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 it's like we're okay we're just gonna leave the camera on we're gonna go get some lunch (laughs) you get to eat when you catch this pigeon (laughs) (laughs) all right uh so best director is what's left yeah, uh, I already said mine is Quentin Tarantino. I'm not going to say anything else about it. Okay, so mine is... Uh, I'm not going to get it right. I know how it looks. It looks like Leo's Carex. Uh, I don't uh, know how you say it either. Okay, so let's say it's that for uh, Holy Motors. Now, Holy Motors is a film that, as I as I mentioned, like uh, I didn't necessarily love it when I saw it. The more I think about it, the more I'm starting to love it. I think we've got a Werkmeister Harmony situation going on. <laughs> um, and... Uh, and more than anything, that's the thing. Even if I didn't, lo- even if I didn't love it when I first saw it, like I mean, you can't deny just how amazing it is, how- and how often. Uh-huh. Like I mean, it is directed with such a sure, confident hand. It's so, it's so rare to find like a bizarre film, uh, and it is a bizarre film in many ways. Um, yeah. And the director seems to constantly be saying like, "Yeah, so what? Uh-huh. What's?" What's what's your point? Yes, I know it's bizarre. That's what I want. Like, but he's also but it, not in a defiant way, and not in a, not in a I way think that that almost in, is a bit of a defiance. There might be a, a little bit at the end, which I won't talk about. <laughs> but, but I just mean in general because he's like he is making a like you said very self consciously bizarre artsy film. Yeah, within which he is also making all these very familiar types of genres and su- subgenres. Yeah, and doing those not in the, like it would be. It would be an unearned. What did you say? Defiant. It would be an unearned defiance if he was looking down his nose at these genres, right? You know, because there's like the crime story or the musical. If he right. was looking down his nose on them and, and staging them in a in a hacky, like an intentionally hacky way, yeah, that would turn me off. That would be defiant. But he's making awesome action movies, awesome crime thrillers, and awesome musicals. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's within, celib- it's celebratory, celebratory yeah. instead of masturbatory, uh-huh. and uh, it could be that a, a little bit as well. <laughs> but uh, you know, and and that's the thing. When I think of defiant. I do tend to think of a uh, think of that in a negative way, yeah. like uh, like what people we just mentioned Michael Haneke with something like Funny Games, which there is a certain degree of looking down his nose, not at the genre but at the audience. Yeah. Um, and so I, I didn't get any sense of that, but it's just like he's more uh, what's what I was going to look for? Uh, pedantic, maybe sure than defiant, sure. And so instructive, instructive's not bad. Yeah, I'm not there's sure. a, there's a word. The, yeah, there's got to be a, a phrase for it, but I can't. It's not coming to mind. But the, but it's just it, it's he it's just done with such such confidence and with such there's a self assurance maybe there that yeah. uh, that I find uh, refreshing and and it's just and it is self aware, but I don't think it's necessarily even self conscious. Um, he's just going to do what the movie needs him to do and, and he's going to do it well. And so, you know, that's why when people ask, when you ask somebody like, what's your favorite part, which is not a phrase that I like, not a question I like to ask, but the film lends itself to that. Um, you know, people are going to have a hard time 
saying which one because everybody has a different thing that they'll respond to and everything is done with an equal amount of love and mm-hmm. skill. It's almost like asking, hey, who's your favorite character on Deadwood? Well, each character is clearly yeah. so lovingly drawn that it's hard to it's hard to choose. Yeah, my, that's a question that I weirdly have been asked multiple times. Who's my favorite character on Deadwood? And I usually have a different answer. Yeah, it's depending like... Depending on how I'm feeling at any given time. Yeah, and so like it's... And so just... There's just this nice like... I don't know, I can't even, I can't even describe it. Like it's just a film that needs to be experienced and that's not something that can be said very often. Um, and at the end of it, you just, you feel like you've been in very, I, and I, and I keep saying it just like very loving, confident hands. You feel like you were always, you were never out of his control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but it did, it did not feel soulless because sometimes like I would venture to say, like a Stanley Kubrick, he always had tremendous control, and you always felt that. But I think that always made his films a little cold. Um, that's not necessarily a flaw. Whereas this, I think, had a great deal of heart while mm. also being very controlled. And so it's it's hard. It's it's even hard to describe. But that's I think a one of one of the uh, wonderful things about it is that it's hard to uh, categorize uh, definitively, like the kind of movie it is and the kind of director he is. And so uh, so yeah, it's it's a movie that. Uh, uh, this uh, this past week, I was in the midst of uh, driving around and getting stuff ready to for the move. I, I did find time to uh, stop off and buy myself a Blu-ray copy of The Master uh, <laughs> and uh, Anna Karenina. Oh, and then I was like, I was like, oh, you know what? I think I want to buy Holy Motors too. I was like, I get the feeling that they're not going to have it at Target. Son of a bitch, <laughs> I was right. They did not have it. And it so, is out, though, on, on It Blu-ray. is out on Blu-ray, yeah. yes. And and it's something that uh, I'm eager to to purchase. So You know what I want to get on Blu-ray? What's that? Snow White and the Huntsman. Absolutely. <laughs> it's one I feel like I would watch. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, in the middle of the night. Yeah. That's there's, the kind of time I would watch Snow you know, White and the Huntsman. With every given year, there's probably maybe like like four or five movies that I feel like I, that I want to own now in the past it, it was like probably 10 or 12, but now I'm trying to be a little bit more honest with myself and be like, okay, what am I going to actually rewatch? Yeah. What will I lend to people? And, uh, this year, and maybe this goes to you know, what you and I talk about, well, like what makes for a good year this year, there's probably a solid 10. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a lot of, uh, I said that two weeks ago, it's a, I had a lot of fun at the movies. This yeah. Year. All right. Um, that's it. Um, I think we're done, yeah. You can find us at BattleshipRetention.com where you can find reviews written by us and other writers of most of the movies we talked about today. Um, you can email us, david at BattleshipRetention.com or tyler at BattleshipRetention.com. You can, of course, always donate to us. We love that. Yeah. Or send us send us shit. Uh, P.O. Box is on the, uh, on the website. Um, you can follow me, David, on Twitter at ThePretension. Follow Tyler on Twitter at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at morethanonelesson.com. And by the way, I know I say this every week, you really should be following Tyler. I still am annoyed that I have so many more followers than you do. Uh, it makes sense. Because yeah. of mine is the name of the show. It, yeah, yeah. I get that. But if you like the show, you should be following both of us. I don't What's tweet as often hurt? as you do. Yeah, but you had I those things. Up... You had those Oscar predictions. Those were funny. Thank you. Those I do always funny. pick up uh, like 12 to 15 followers around Oscar time. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but uh, that and then, okay, so real quick. This is, here's the thing that 
I'm going to assume people know I'm joking, but no one has ever made any reference to it. Whenever I announce an impromptu meetup, I'm joking. Okay? <laughs> like, when I say impromptu meetup with me and uh, at the Josh Long at Roundtable Pizza in Burbank, like, that's me making a joke. Or, like, impromptu more than one lesson meetup at this line at the... Uh, at the Hertz Rent-A-Car at the uh, Denver airport. Like, that's me making a joke. And has nobody ever showed up? No one, well, certainly no. But, awesome. uh, but no one has ever said, ha, that's funny. No one has ever favored it. I'm just like, I hope people don't think I'm just incredibly desperate and, desperate <laughs> and just really and totally uh, unaware uh, that this is not practical at all. That's funny. But, uh, but yeah, and so I did want to say real quick, um, so this will be going up Sunday night in two days the episode of more than one lesson that will be going up is one that people have been wanting me to do for a number of years, which is a discussion of the last temptation of Christ. And, uh, I've been on, uh, the criterion cast talking about that movie. So I've talked about it before. Um, but this, uh, episode is about, uh, uh, like an hour, an hour and a half hour 45. I don't totally remember, but, uh, but yeah, we go fairly in depth. Uh, there is no companion film. Sometimes we'll talk about an older film and we just devote the whole, the whole, episode to that so okay. i'm i'm pleased with the episode and uh like i said people have been wanting me to talk about it uh on the show and so you can that'll be up on tuesday all right um my other podcast when i do it is previously on that's at previously on com. although i will a little bit of tease there might be another other podcast in the in the near future watch out um that may also be spelling the end of previously on officially i haven't done previously on in months but it might officially end and i might be doing another podcast in the in the future so i hope that piqued your interest um that's it right i th- yeah yeah and then uh just a reminder that we will be at uh wondercon and so WonderCon. Uh, shoot us yeah yeah oh, jeez uh shoot us an email and let us know if uh, if you're going to be there we don't have you know it's it is not as uh, att- well attended as Comic Con, so we have no real expectation of a lot of people being there. But if if a fair number of people are there, then uh, maybe I'll arrange something. Yeah, I'll, we'll just well, I'll follow you on Twitter, and you'll announce an impromptu meetup. Yeah, there, yeah, and but we'll I'll show say, up. Yeah, but but this one will be real. And <laughs> uh, and so I'll say impromptu meet meetup for serious. <laughs> but anyway, so okay, everybody, um, thanks for listening, and we'll get you next time. Bye, bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.